Well, you can't scale till you can get out of the way. And you can't get out of the way until you can trust and empower people. You actually have to let go. You can't trust and empower people until you're surrounded by people smarter than you. So a real leader's real job is not to tell people what to do. It's not to create followers. It's to grow other leaders. Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Jeff Hoffman. Jeff's the author of a book called Scale. It's his principles to grow, a retrospective. He's been an entrepreneurial CEO from the second day he joined university and they kicked him out of Yale. He had to start a business so he could pay for his college education. They kicked him out because he hadn't paid. He started Priceline.com, which in Europe or UK certainly is Booking.com. He's also Ubid. We chat a little bit. He's got a TV show, which you can watch on Apple TV, which is a bit like Shark Tank, but it's um, where viewers can invest in a business. It's about going public. So that sounds like that's quite fun. And when I'm talking to him, there's a couple of things. There's a great story right at the end, which is I remember him speaking at an event I was at in LA a few years ago. and him telling the story got the hairs on the back of my neck standing up and it isn't till right until the end when I get him to uh, tell that story on the podcast so great story at the end we talk about culture we talk about the things that only the CEO can do and only the CEO should do we get into that we also have a fantastic example of tour of duty spoke to Chris Yeo a few episodes ago the author of blitzscaling we talked with him about tour of duty jeff's got a great example of how he trained himself to get into tour of duty and and how it instead of trying to sell his dream to employees he's trying to find out what their dream is and sell why working for him is should be part of getting a hold of their dreams fantastic conversation with jeff i really enjoyed it i'm sure you will too Hi, I'm Jeff Hoffman. I'm a serial entrepreneur in the tech space. Uh, been involved in quite a number of startups, including Priceline.com, Booking.com, Ubid.com. Today, I serve as the chairman of the Global Entrepreneurship Network, uh, where we teach people how to start and scale business ventures. And we're now in 200 different countries, as well as uh, developing some TV content around the same topic, how to grow your business. We have a show out now called Going Public. It's kind of like Shark Tank, except that the TV viewers get to invest in the companies. And on the show, I'm working with the companies to teach them how to scale. 
So that's a little bit about me and my background. I haven't seen that show over here. What what channel is it on or is it on? The best place to watch it is actually Entrepreneur Magazine, Entrepreneur Media at entrepreneur.com because they have a lot of enhanced content there. So okay. you can either go to goingpublic.com, the name of the show, or entrepreneur.com, even though it's streaming on Roku and Apple and other places. Uh, that's the best place to see it. Fab. And does a company go public? I mean, is there an equity event linked to the audience? Yeah, so best? We haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, we're still in season one and getting the companies ready to see which ones we will, in fact, take public. But meanwhile, the viewers as I said, can buy pre-IPO stock at pre-IPO prices. You know, we trademarked a technology called Click to Invest. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Very good. And do you have a favorite business you've been involved in? Yeah, honestly, it was my first one ever. When I was 20-something years old and, and broke and unemployed, I had a corporate job and I just couldn't get along with the bureaucracy at the company I worked for and my boss. So I quit. I was broken, unemployed, missed a flight in an airport because it took more than an hour to check in. And all you're doing is waiting for someone to hit print and give you a boarding card back then. So I went home and uh, said, there's got to be a better way to check in. And I took out a pencil and drew a kiosk. And today those check-in kiosks are in airports all over the world. But I was 20-something years old, broke, never started a company or had any idea what I was doing. And we were able to build and scale that company to deliver product to, again, you see those chaos and airports all over the world. So that experience will, even though it was my first, will always be my favorite. And you sold that business or? Yeah. So really we sold it in two parts. We were able to sell a lot of our software and patents, and then we were able to sell the part of the company that owned all that hardware as well. So yes, we sold it. Aha. Uh-huh. So what did you do? You did computer science at uni and learned to code? I did. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, it's almost a little ironic because I went to a school I really wanted to go to to study this relatively new thing called AI. (laughs) And there weren't a lot of schools that had an artificial intelligence program yet. So the one I wanted to go to, which turned out to be a Yale University in the U.S., I couldn't afford. And on the first day, they told me to go home because I couldn't attend class since I hadn't paid the full tuition. So... Instead of that's a, you know, you work so hard to achieve your dream and on day one, they kick you out. Not that I'm mad at them. They're right. I hadn't paid. It's not like you can, uh, you know, uh, uh, move into someone's house without buying it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Were you just hoping to blag it when you turned up on day so one? I, I, I thought they'd work with me and they wouldn't. They said, we've worked with you all we can. But anyway, I started a software company on day two of the first week because I could not go to class. So I was already writing code and, and teaching myself as I was taking classes. And ultimately, I, my company funded my entire college education on my own. But I was running a software biz. Uh, so I was in the tech space on day one. Actually, literally day two. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that takes a certain amount of drive and an unusual mindset, maybe. Where does that come from? I think you're dead on. It's all about mindset. I have a, uh, my office, I have a whiteboard where I write down a lot of stuff that is meaningful to me. And one of the things it says on there is your attitude determines your outcome. Cause I fundamentally believe that. Uh, I will tell you that came from <clears throat> growing up with a single mom, four kids, no money, mom working two or three jobs. And actually the driver for me was sports. I played every sport. 
So when the season changed, I needed new shoes and new equipment. But my mom was already working so hard, I didn't want to stress her out. And I didn't want to ask for anything. So my attitude was, I want something. I don't want to ask for it. So I need to figure out how to get it. So I would literally walk around the neighborhood as a kid, knock on doors, say, is there anything you need done that you don't want to do? Because I'll do it for money. Clean your garage, haul out your trash, mow your lawn. Tell me something you don't feel like doing and let me do it and pay me. So that's kind of where that mindset came from. If you want something, figure it out yourself. And if you're willing to work hard, there's always a way to get to where you're going. And it turned out to be true. Where were you growing up? In the heat of the Arizona desert in the United States. And was it teachers? Was it your mother working so hard? Was it? It was probably more watching my mother not complain and just work harder and do what she had to do, right? Her mission was raise four kids and keep them living in an area she could not afford, but to get us to a school she wanted us to go to. So she was determined to achieve her goal anyway and just find a way to make it work. So I would say mom was was hero number one. And what about, was that a community where there were lots of other people with similar aspirations or did you feel did you feel lonely no actually we were the only divorced family on our whole street in our area everyone had two parents uh and we were the only ones without so and statistically especially back then uh, the you know the father was much more often the made the breadwinner right making more money than the mother and so without a father around, we were, the, we were struggling more than anybody. So I did not really have a good example except my mom's good attitude. Okay. Very good. And the, um, you wrote a fantastic book a, a little while ago called Scale. What made you want to do that? So, you know, interesting that I, I always use this analogy. If you broke your arm, everybody would walk up to you and say, hey, what happened? And you'd say, I fell off my bike. And the next person would say, how'd you break your arm? I fell off my bike. Pretty soon you'd want to get a T-shirt that said, I fell off my damn bike. Stop asking me. Right? <laughs> so for me, it was, how did you scale your company? How do I scale a company? How do I scale a company? I don't, can't figure out how to grow. And people were asking so often that I was thinking, maybe we should write down what we've learned so far. But honestly, I would have never gotten the book done without David, my co-author, because I'd never written a book. He'd written books. And I knew that time-wise, I was just never going to finish it. So once I talked to David and we said, let's write a book together, he's really, you know, it wouldn't have gotten done without him. But that's why the book was written, because so many people kept coming up and saying, my business from launch to now grew really fast, but now I've hit a plateau and I'm working harder than ever before. And I'm just not getting the growth rate. How do I get to the next level? And so we wrote a book to answer that question. And what types of problems are people hitting the same problem that you hit and got through it are they thinking about are they have do they have different challenges no i that that's actually the good news in a sense is that there are a relatively finite number of challenges and everybody's hitting most of those but they are similar problems and so that again the reason i say it's good news is for someone like me looking back many years later i wasn't smart enough to know these things going forward right i wish someone had told me But now I can go back and say, here's the stuff you got to get right that I wish someone had told me. And most people are struggling. Most entrepreneurs and small business owners that are trying to scale are struggling with the same problems, especially in tech. Let's 
maybe dive into a, a couple of those then, which. Sure. So first and biggest one, and, you know, before we started, you and I were chatting about something you wish you had uh, known back then. Um, so I'll answer that question uh, that you brought up before, because it's it's one of the biggest ones, which is that it's never about you and it never was. You're the founder. You're the brilliant person, guy or girl with the idea. You're the CEO, right? You're the owner of the company. So therefore, you think a lot of it's on you to come up with the ideas, to lead, to tell people what to do. A lot of people think that's a CEO's or a leader's job is to tell people what to do. The moment really that for me, our businesses started to grow when I figured out that the key to success is, well, you can't scale till you can get out of the way. And you can't get out of the way until you can trust and empower people. You actually have to let go and you have to, you can't trust and empower people until you're surrounded by people smarter than you. So a real leader's real job is not to tell people what to do. It's not to create followers. It's to grow other leaders. And so when I said, I got to spend less time telling people what to do and more time hunting for people smarter than me and just getting out of their way. Uh, when I kind of flipped the pyramid to more of a servant leadership model, that's when things took off. It turns out, no matter how successful anyone li is that's listening to this, you're not as smart as you think you are, and you're not actually good at seven things, right? You may be doing the books and designing the products and doing the marketing and the sales pitches, and it's going well. But the truth is, I have never hired an engineer who did all my taxes and then wrote all our marketing copy, right? <laughs> My accountant does my taxes. Our marketing people write our, our copy. So likewise, why is it you think you can do all these things? And so when I realized that each one of us is actually only good at one thing, and by the way, what's funny, I'm a software engineer. It turns out the tech part was not, I just got to share this with you. I'm sitting in the office one day. We're all writing code. I'm a software developer, right? It's my computer science degree. And everybody's staring at me suddenly. No one's coding. And I was like, hey, guys, what's up? And they all look at Robert, the senior guy. And Robert's like, yeah, Jeff, we're going to ask you to step away from the keyboard. Right? <laughs> Why? What's going on? And they said, look, uh, you suck at writing code. <laughs> and I said, OK, hang on. This is my company. I hired you guys. And they said, and that doesn't change how bad your code is. And I said, we all have the same degree. We all studied computer science. And they're like, and somehow the rest of us learned it really well. And I looked at them and I looked at me and I said, I'll, I'll never be in the same league as you. So why am I trying to write code, right? These guys are brilliant. So it occurred to me that if I can find rock stars like that for every functional area of the company, I'm actually good at marketing. So from there on, I would run the marketing meeting, but I would stay out of the way for every other department and hire people smarter than me. That's the problem. That's the one that everybody's stuck on. They tell me I'm putting in more hours than I ever have. And I'm like, actually, you should be putting in less and you should be spending your time finding those rock stars and letting them run your company. And, you know, it's it's there. There's a transition. How many employees do you have? At that, did you have at that point? Um, well, at the way beginning, there was like just six of us. Right. When the guys told me because all we were doing was writing code when they told me to stop. I actually I said, what do you guys want me to do? And they said, uh, why don't you go figure out marketing because the product will be ready soon. But. I didn't really adopt the bigger vision of that till much later to realize that in every area, except the one thing you're good at, stop doing all the other ones. At the beginning, you, you know, I didn't have any money to hire anybody else. 
But the point is, later I learned that from the first moment, you should be planning that. A second I can let go of marketing, if that's if you're a pure tech person, you should be getting out of marketing. Or whatever it is, the things you're not good at, you should start as soon as you can and constantly be saying, as soon as I can let go of this and give it to someone smarter than me, I will. But I didn't. I held on too long to too many areas that later, when I figured that out, our other companies grew way faster because I didn't make that mistake again later. Uh-huh. Why do people hold on? Is it ego? It's ego. Yeah. It's my idea. Y- you know, there's that famous advice that I always makes me laugh. There's a, a, an old adage that says, if you want something done right, do it yourself. That is the worst advice you could ever take in business. That is like the time I... One day, some people were asking me questions about a cash flow statement of my company. I was having dinner with other friends who were business owners and entrepreneurs. And I said, I don't really understand all that finance stuff. I'm a tech, really, I'm a technical marketing guy. And they're like, Jeff, you're the CEO. You're the founder of the company. You're the owner. You have to know everything that goes on in your company. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. So I went to the bookstore and I bought a book called finance and accounting for tech people, for non-finance people. And I was so excited, man. I went home and I opened the book and I'm like, it's on page one. I said, this is actually one of the stupidest things I've ever done. What am I going to do next? I'm going to buy a book called How to Be a Dentist. Uh, No, (laughs) I'm going to go to a dentist when I need it. So I put the book down. I never read it. And I said, I need to find a finance person. Who am I kidding? I'm not. There are people that have finance degrees. They do it day in and day out. It's what they know. I'm not going to pretend. So when someone tells you as a leader, you need to know everything going on in your company. If you want something done, do it right. Do it yourself. That's horrible advice. Get a professional to do the stuff they know how to do and stick to the stuff you know how to do. (laughs) Yeah, it was bad. I really thought I was going to have to learn finance for a minute, even though I'm because all my friends are like, if you own the company and you can't read every financial statement, I was like, how about I hire a rock star finance person that I totally trust and I leave it in her hands? And she explains to me what I need to know because I trust her, right? And people looked at me like that was a crazy idea, but that's exactly what I did. And how successful were they, those people who are saying you need to understand everything? Well, uh, you know, <laughs> I can, it's funny you ask that because I can – I can think of the specific people. And uh, many years later, when we launched, you know, our biggest venture, which was, well, in in Europe, it's booking.com, but it's the same company, priceline.com. And, you know, we IPO'd and the company turned into a multi-billion dollar company. And it was all because of the timing, of course, matters. But really, we won because of the amazing team and the people we spent time building and growing into leaders. And, you know, later, I would run into some of these people and we had built a multi-billion dollar company and they still had, and again, I'm not judging any of it. It's not the point, but you know, they still had the same small business that they had many years before. And I was like thinking to myself, you're the bottleneck. You're the reason your company's not growing because you're trying to hold so tight control over everything that no one can be efficient. You're the inefficiency. If you could step out of the way, people could grow. And it, it's funny, isn't it? Because you, you speak to people and they say, yeah, but that person, they're going to be expensive. Yeah. So what you know what's funny about that? I'm so glad you brought that up because people assume, here's one I get all the time, right? Because now, you know, I coach and work with a lot of leaders and they say to me, I need that person, but no one is going to work for free or for a low salary. 
And then I pause and I say, uh, what are you paying yourself? Well, I'm not paying anything. I don't get paid anything right now. I'll get paid later, but I own a big piece of the company. I said, wait a minute. You just said in two consecutive sentences, no one in the world's going to work for no money. And then I said, what are you working for? And you said, no money. So I said, apparently there are people in the world willing to work for no money at the beginning. So what I did was when I hired people, I said, I can't pay you yet, but you're betting on yourself. And I said, so if you come here, the difference between your current corporate job is you have a salary, but you don't own anything. If you come here, you'll have equity, you own a piece of the company. But on the downside, at the beginning, I can't pay you anything. However, you're betting on you because the faster you build the product and the better the product is, the more I can pay you with no cap on the upside. I said, so get over here and get to work. And the faster the product's done, right? And then the product started selling like hell and I did a bonus pool. And so they were making, I had people that joined me that literally were living on their savings at the beginning, but they got the product done so fast. And the product was so good because they bet on themselves that when this was the kiosk company, when sales started coming in, I was like, here, take some, right? We have a pile of money, take some. And suddenly they were making way more than they were at their salaried job because they were willing to bet on themselves. So you are correct. Those people are expensive, but it is false to assume that there aren't people out there that will take a risk. You're taking one. Why do you think no one else will? But yeah, the other thing though is giving away equity. People, you know, I want to protect all this equity. It's not worth anything, but I'm not going to give anything away. Yeah, that that one amazes me because I always tell them, congratulations, you're about to own 100% of nothing. Or you could own a way smaller percent of a big giant thing. Greed doesn't work. And what part of it is that they're being told externally, protect your equity, don't give it away. You know who's telling them that? The investor community. The investment community is the one that delivers that message because they want your equity. They want you to save it all for them. And when you divide your equity without greed among these rock star people, you wind up with less, but you wind up with a company that is so much bigger that your stake is worth way more. So in the end, I always passed out equity. And when I had investors that had an issue at times, I gave people some of my own personal equity. So I didn't even have to go back later and ask the investors. And it paid off because we wound up creating the giant companies because all the best people came to work for me. And talk to me a bit about recruiting these great people. Do you have any sage-like wisdom or heuristics or? Yeah, I have some I have some really good learning. I'll just share the story with you because one day while I was building my company, some guy calls me and he goes, hey, I need a chief operating officer for my company. Could you come over and interview? And I was like, hey, dude, I got my own company, right? I started to tell him I'm running my own business. I, I have, I'm all in here. I can't. But I started thinking what I told you before. I'm actually a tech person by training and I'm hiring people. Who taught me how to interview? Nobody. I have no HR training. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take the interview just so I can learn more about interviewing, right? Because maybe I'll get a little better at it until I can bring an HR person in. Um, so I went to the interview and the guy told me about the vision of the company and the mission statement and what he was trying to do. And I sat there thinking that that's your dream. You are pitching me your dream and you want me to pick up a shovel and start digging so you can, you know, buy a boat someday or whatever. And so when I was driving back, I was thinking, wait, what do I do? Well, I do the same thing. You come into my office to apply for a job and I tell you all about my dream. 
But I say I use words like our mission statement, our vision, our business plan. That's my dream. I started this company. So the lesson I learned and I changed my interviewing style. When you walk in, I ask you what your dream is. Tell me what you're trying to accomplish with your life so I can see if I can help you get there through a career at my company. I will make it my mission to try to help you achieve your goals if you help this company succeed. And when I started focusing on what could I do for you to help you achieve your life's goals, that's when I discovered that, you know, those rock star people that I wish I could hire, actually, I sold that first tech company to a Fortune 500 company. And uh, I found out after I sold it that in the years since the day I started it to the day we sold it, not one person that worked for me ever quit. And I went back to them and I said, how did we have a zero voluntary turnover? And they said, because we never worked anywhere where someone asked us what our life's goals were. And we actually believed that you were trying to help us get there every day. You were designing our career around our goals, not yours. And I learned that later looking backwards, but it made a huge, huge difference. Focus on what they want, not what you want them to do. And then as you got bigger and you were hiring HR people, have you got some thoughts on HR and what that needs to look like? It's actually a little bigger than HR, but yeah. When I started saying I need someone to run HR now, and now I thought I could afford to hire somebody at this point. And by the way, you don't also have to either hire people for zero. It's not binary, right? I can't hire anybody because they can't pay their salary. Or I'll hire them but pay them zero, right? And just give them equity. Those It's not a binary decision. I couldn't afford a CFO or a head of finance. So I knew a guy that worked. He was a corporate finance director. And I asked him to come over every Wednesday night and I bought him dinner, right? For pizza and a beer, he did my books. So I paid him three hours a week and bought him dinner. So instead of saying, I'll wait until I can hire somebody, I had a three hour a week CFO and that worked until I could hire that very guy full time. But when I had money for an HR person, I started to realize something. You know, you've heard me use the word rock star many times here that you got to find those amazing people. And the advice to everybody listening is those people aren't going to wander into your office and they're probably not responding to your job posting because most of the people that respond to job postings are people that lost theirs or aren't, or it isn't going well at their job, right? That's why they're looking. The rock stars in your industry are not looking for a job. And so I started thinking, how am I going to find an HR rock star to run my business? And the, the, my advice to everybody is you got to go find talent. And so what I did was I started asking people, where do HR people hang out? And everybody kept telling me, SHRM. And I was like, what is that word? They said, it's not a word, it's an acronym. So I looked it up and it's the Society of Human Resource Managers. Uh-huh. And so I went to the website And on the website, it said, don't forget to sign up for our annual conference. So I signed up for the annual conference (laughs) and I paid the fees. And when I went there, there was like, I don't know, more than a thousand people. And they all had a name badge and green was the color of HR executives. And there was like out of a thousand people, 999 green badges. And mine was red because they said, what do you do in HR? I said, I'm not in HR. I'm just a CEO. So I'm walking around the, the, the show and the other 900, you know, thousand people are looking at me saying, what do you do in HR? I said, I'm not in HR. And they said, why would you come to an HR conference? What are you doing here? And I said, I'm shooting fish in a barrel, right? I said, there's a thousand of you and there's one of me and I need someone to run HR. That's how I found my HR person, by getting out of the office 
and hunting her down. Her name was Angela. And she ran HR for me for the next like three or four companies in a row as we built them and sold them. It's putting together that team of people, the CFO and then your head of HR. That's, you know, a bit like when you were back home in Arizona. What is it you don't like to do? Can I do it for you? Right. You know, that it's like, what is it that only Jeff can do? Only Jeff can go and find the guy who's going to be the CFO and persuade him to do the books for dinner. Only Jeff could go to the HR conference and hire Angela. And you meet people and they say, but I haven't got time to do that. So I've I've got this junior person trying to do it for me. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's funny that that's exactly what people say. I don't have time to do those things. So it's funny to me that you're so busy being inefficient that you don't have the time to go get the person that would make you unbelievably efficient, right? When Glenn came in to run finance, it was unbelievable how, how the whole company changed overnight and our, our, our whole efficiency, our profit margins and everything, our purchasing. Once I took the time to get him in, the company changed literally overnight. When I brought Angela in to run HR, we suddenly had an onboarding process that I wasted so much time you know, trying to bring people on. And she said, Jeff, it's a thing. It's called onboarding. I'll do it. I'll set it up. And she created videos for onboarding and she created internal kind of like a big brother's big sister's thing inside where when you came on, you were somebody was assigned to help you integrate into the company and to design your career. And so you were correct. People say, I'm too busy. You're too busy being inefficient to get efficient. It's crazy. So if the CEO's job should be to do the thing that only the CEO should do, what are those things that you think they definitely shouldn't be doing the coding, the marketing, <laughs> yeah. the HR. Yeah. But, what, but how do you define the role of CEO then? But if you are, even though you're the CEO, if you are an incredible engineer, you should be in the engineering meetings. If you are great at marketing, you should be in those. If you're a financial whiz, so you should be involved in the, the thing you're good at and let the other people, the, you know, the, the people smarter than you run all the other things. But I think there's two super important CEO jobs. One we just talked about. You're the talent hunter. Spend less time running the company and more time out, out of your office hunting for talent. One time I needed more tech people. So I started Googling and there's this monthly thing called Tech Meetup. And it was literally at a pizza joint. And I paid the like $15 fee. And I went to the tech meetup and it was filled. There was about 200 and something high-end system designers and me. And they're like, never seen you here before. I said, well, I'm not really a system designer. Like, why would you go to tech meetup? And I said, because I need a couple, right? And then I started challenging them. Who's the smartest person in this room? And that got, you know, that got a discussion flowing. And pretty soon people kept saying, oh, honestly, it's Robert. I'm pretty good, but Robert's the best. So I'm like, someone show me Robert. And then I started working on this guy. How do I talk you into coming to my company? What do I got to do? So talent hunting is one. But the other role of a CEO when you're not, you know, working on the business, right, is culture. You need to build. I am a huge believer in that part of what draws those great people to, to a company is the culture of the company because they already know they're going to make money, right? They've been making money. They're rock stars by definition. So they care a lot about the culture of the place. So I spend a lot of time working on the culture of the company and making it a place, you know, you want to design as a CEO, you want to design the place 
that all the best people in your industry all want to work there and they never want to leave. That takes work. That's an important part of the CEO's job. So there were days I would tell my team, I'm not working today. Don't ask me any questions. Today, I'm working on improving our culture. My job today is, is chief cultural office, and I'm going to be I might be in the office, but I'm going to be focusing all my attention on figuring out how to make this the best place anybody's ever worked. So I put a lot of time into building the culture of the company because that's what attracts and retains people that could work anywhere they want. What are some of the things you did along the way? Well, a big piece of it is not just having values, but displaying them and living them. I write them on the walls, right? The val- what we care about is written on the walls, but then we recognize them when we live them every day. I one of the values that was on the wall uh, was, you know, humanity first is what I wrote. Now people, today people say people over profits, but that phrase wasn't out there. So I just wrote humanity first, take good care of people and the rest will work itself out, make long-term decisions. And as an example, one day I discovered by accident that one of my employees was babysitting and house sitting the children of our biggest customer. Um, <laughs> And it's because she was on the phone. She's an account manager. She was on the phone with the client and the client got promoted. And at the same time she got, this is a real story. The the day she got promoted, she ran home. She was an executive and this customer. And so she was the money earner in their family. So her husband was a stay at home dad to take care of the kids. So this woman got promoted. And by the way, it was our biggest customer revenue wise, a fortune 500 company. So this customer ran home at lunch that day to tell her husband she got the huge promotion and she burst into the house and found him in bed with her best friend. <laughs> she comes back the, ne- the next day, she's talking to our account manager and my account manager told me later something was wrong. And my account manager said, look, let's pretend we're not, I'm not an account manager and you're not a customer. Let's just talk girl to girl. What's wrong? And she said, if you don't want to talk to me at all, just tell me that and I'll shut up. But if you want to talk off the record, and she told her, my whole life just collapsed. As soon as I got this promotion, I filed for divorce and I can't, I have to travel in the new job, which I never traveled before. And I no longer have someone to take care of the kids because I kicked my husband out of the house. And my employee said, tell you what, we don't live that far apart. When you need to travel I'll come spend those weekends at your house and I'll take care of your kids. No one told me she was doing this. And one day the customer gave us like our best vendor award. And I was like, what what exactly did we do? And they said, you guys are the most like, you focus on people over profits. I was like, okay, that's actually written on the wall here. And I said, why do you think that? And she told me the story. She said, your employee babysits my kids. Doesn't get much better than that. And I went to the employee and what I did was in front of all the other employees, I, I did this. I'm called these just a stand up meeting. I walked down the hall and I said, everybody stand up. Everybody come out in the hall. Everybody come down here and go to Natalie's surround Natalie's desk. And everyone's like, Jeff, what's going on? I said, you'll see. And I said, Natalie, I said, I just found out what you've been doing. And I pointed at the wall and I said, those are our core values. And you are demonstrating them in an amazing way. And I'd gone to the bank and got a stack of $100 bills. It's not that much money. But to hand somebody a thousand bucks, right? To hand somebody a pile of money and say, I just want, you know, dinner's on me, right? Even though it's way more money than dinner. Recognizing in front of everybody else 
that someone is living the company's values and letting them know that management actually appreciates that made a huge, it made a big ripple through our company. Everyone's like, wow, Jeff means what he wrote on the wall. He called Natalie out and rewarded her for actually living our values. So I think that's a big piece of your job as a CEO, create a culture, live the culture and reward people that actually demonstrate the thing that you that you value. They're the myths. That's how you create myths and legends. <laughs> that one turned out to be a legend in our company. <laughs> but then people know that they can take their initiative and they're not going to get stamped on and yep. And they're going to get rewarded and and in onboarding, you know, people get to hear those myths and legends and they they seek to create their own and live up to the ones that went before. Uh, that, that is that is exactly right. That kind of becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy when people understand that it's not just a poster on the wall. It's the way we live here at this company. Just changing tack slightly, because there's one other thing that I want to pick your brains on, which is it's in your book. And I come across it every day when I'm working with, with clients or talking to, to prospects. Why don't people understand why their customers buy from them? Oh, gosh, I'm so glad that you asked that. I say to people, who are your competitors? Blah, blah, blah. Why do they buy from you and not from them? And the room goes deathly quiet and there's a chill. And people look around at each other hoping somebody else knows the answer. You are so right. And you know what else they do? They do these surveys before the sale to find out what people are going to buy. And they say, for example, rate these 10 things in order of importance the price of our product, the ease of use of our product, the flexibility, whatever it is, right? And when you're doing a survey, it's sort of been proven that when people are being surveyed, they want to appear smart. So they answer the survey with the answers they think are smart. But then let's, for example, everybody says, what's most important? And everybody says price is really important. And then nobody buys the cheapest product. Your product is not the cheapest one and they bought it anyway. Yet all of your surveys said price was most important. And I think the answer to your question is because they do all this research to find out what people are going to buy. And once they've bought, they assume they were right. See, they must have thought our price was good because they said that was important and they bought our product. The key is after people buy your product to go back and ask them, what really was the reason you bought our product? I tell people to ask this. If you could give me the one and only one single most important reason you bought our product, what was that reason? So do the research when people, and you know, strike while the iron's hot. When you close a sale, ask the people after they've made the decision, can you tell me the real reason you bought this product? What stood out amongst everything else that really caused it? Because the truth is, it's usually one thing. They'll say, honestly, all the other products are so complicated and yours is so easy to use. I'm making up an example. And you're like, wait a minute. On the survey, you said price was most important. And they're like, well, it was a survey, but in reality, it doesn't make sense to buy a cheaper product and then not be able to use it. We paid a little more because you have the best interface, right? So you should be marketing best interface on the market and quit talking about your price because that's not why they're buying your product. So I'm so glad you asked that. Ask people after they bought your product, what was the single most important driver that caused them to buy your product? People do not do that. So in reality, you were right. They don't know why people are buying their product. 
I find it fascinating. I also think another good question to ask people is to say, the ones you win, how do we nearly screw it up along the way? Uh, yeah. <laughs> because again, they're just out of the process. You think you're winning and you don't know how close you were to losing. And I used to run a CRM consulting business. And when we do the reports for the sales director, I'd say, look, there's your win-loss drop down, but you're missing one. And they'd say, no, price was wrong, product quality. No, we're not missing one. I said, no, you're missing one. You're missing the only one that counts. And they're like, nah, you'd have to tell me. And I said, you were outsold by a better salesperson. Yeah, they, <laughs> it's that. Because so often it's that, you know, here's a commodity and we bought from you because we decided we trusted Henry or Susan or what have you. You know, we actually did research that proves your points. Like it was a multi-million dollar research project at Gen, at our at Global Entrepreneurship Network, the thing that I'm still service chairman of. And the number one reason businesses fail. It's funny because they always say funding. We ran out of money. No, you ran out of money because you suck at selling. You ran out of money because you didn't sell enough, not because you didn't get funding. And you didn't sell enough because you're not good at it. So you're right. The inability to sell well is what kills most companies. A lot of great products in the market that they didn't sell well, and they lost to lesser products many times who were just better salespeople. You are 100% right on that. I find often with tech, tech entrepreneurs who are techie, they really have this myth in their head that if the product is just good enough, we don't need to do that ugly selling thing with those ugly salespeople. Yeah, I, by the way, thought that I was doing all my own sales. And till one day when I met this guy, Paul, if you Googled salesperson or if you looked it up in a dictionary, it'd be his photo, right? He is the consummate salesperson. And when I started talking to him, I was like, geez, he, this is a conversation and he's selling me. So I wound up hiring him and it, it was night and day. I was doing okay at sales. He did phenomenal because he's actually a trained professional. His DNA, his personality, everything about him is sales and it wasn't me but i didn't know how far off i was from being good at sales till i hired a pro that i think is fascinating because i think as human beings we're hardwired to see the world in a linear way and so you're a seven or an eight and so you think a nine or a ten is a bit better but it comes back to your thing about rock stars you know, they're five or 10 times better. Yes. I'm so glad you said it that way because it is not linear anymore. It is exponential. And that's what happened with Paul. I probably, you just put it in a, in a great, I'm going to have to quote you on that because <laughs> that is a better way to explain it. I thought it'd be linear. It'll be a little better with Paul around. It was exponential. Uh, he crushed it. And I did not know that I was that far off until he came on board. Yeah. You've already answered the, what do you know now? You wish you'd known earlier question. So I've got a different question for you then. What question haven't I asked you that you should tell me the answer to? You asked all the ones I wanted to talk about that I think are key to people really growing their business. So that was great. I enjoyed it. You talk about strategy. Do you have a definition of strategy then? You know, it's changed so much over the years because the pace of business accelerated so much starting in the internet era. Businesses are, you know, born, die, or explode in a good way in such a short period of time now. So strategy is always important, but what I've really learned is agility is more important. There are people that set a strategy for the year and stay on it, and the world changes rapidly around them, and competitors do things, and markets do things, and they're like, well, this is our 2022 strategy. Your strategy is to continue like lemmings to just dive off the cliff in a row, right? 
instead of adjusting your strategy to avoid the cliff. So I think that strategy is important, but what I've noticed is agility is more important. Companies that, you know, that I'll tell you what uh, analogy I use, the sports analogy. Right now, the basketball playoffs are going on in the United States. And so you have a strategy for how you're going to play this team. And they're kicking your butt up and down the court. So the, the winning teams go into the locker room at halftime and they say, okay, the strategy didn't work. What are we seeing out there? And they, they take all the live data from what they're seeing literally right now and they adjust the strategy in the locker room and they come out for the next the second half of the game with a strategy that's been modified based on the real data of the first half. Businesses have to do a better job of that. Agility based on actual data is how the winning companies win, not by saying this is our strategy and we're sticking to it. Uh-huh. What do you think the time frame is? Is that is that quarter over quarter over quarter? Yeah, I, I believe in quarterly, yes. You have a one-year plan, but you're really making you're tracking it monthly, but you're meeting to assess quarterly. A month is too short, a year is too long. So I do them quarterly. Very good. One other bonus question for you. What business didn't you start that you think, looking back in hindsight, you think that I should have done that one or or maybe even I'm glad I didn't? No, there was there was one that, I mean, we had some that failed miserably. So, you know, I can't say I'm glad I didn't because we did and we just failed. Luckily, our successes were way bigger than our failures. But I started one at one point that I didn't finish, which was I had this idea that with the internet, you know, prior to the internet, an auction was a physical event you went to. But then there was this thing called the internet. So why not auction stuff to people all over the internet? And I started developing it and uh, I stopped. And then I even met uh, Pierre and Jeff, the guys that were uh, launching eBay. But I actually started an auction thing before that, never finished. Then I talked to them in the early days about working with them and passed because I just wasn't sure people would be into an auction. But I was basing that on the wrong thing, on the fact that a lot of people don't go to auctions back before the internet, right? Because an auction's a physical event to go to. So maybe auctions aren't that interesting. Obviously, there's one I wish I had done because maybe I would have been eBay back then, but uh, you can't look backwards. But you asked, so I answered. Yeah, no, good, good. And Jeff, as well as reading Scale, Seven Proven Principles to Grow Your Business and Get Your Life Back, you got other books people should pick up? I feel like if all, this isn't very editorial opinion, okay? I feel like if I do business 24-7, right, I'm working all day, and then I go home and get in bed and read a business book, I actually think that my I'm too deep in the forest to see the trees sometimes. So I like to sort of refresh my brain, get away from my problems, and get a little bit of the right side of the brain, you know, the little bit of art or creative. So I like to read fiction. And fiction, though, that's still fiction that makes me think about why, why are you working this hard? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? So, for example, The Alchemist is one of my favorite books, right? Because it makes you think about what, what are you actually, what are you searching for in life, right? For entrepreneurs, we work really hard. Why are you working this hard? What are you trying to do? So I think that those things matter a lot. Um, Alchemist is one. I like Mitch Albom's books. One of my favorites is Five People You Meet in Heaven right? Because it makes you think about who are you impacting in your life, right? And what impact do we have on each other as we journey through life? And that includes even your employees. When someone comes to work for you, you have a chance to positively impact 
the course of their family. You can make a difference to them and their family. So I read fiction books that make me think about why I'm doing what I'm doing. What's your favorite employee impact story? Uh, my favorite employee impact story, and I'll, I'll make it quick uh, since I know we're out of time, was uh, when I was asking people the question I asked you earlier, I told you earlier, when I was asking them, uh, what are, what's their dream in their life, not mine? One of my employees' goal was he grew up very poor in a mobile home, a trailer park that we have here in the U.S., and his mother was just his mom and his sister, and they were very poor. And his life's goal was to be successful enough to buy his mother a house in Florida. They lived in the cold part of the country and pay it off, just buy it for cash so she could move to the sunshine and spend the rest of her life in a house she didn't have to pay for in Florida. And so I asked everybody to tell me their big dream, and that was his. And I even put a picture of a house in Florida up on the wall in the office, and people would come by and say, what is that? And I said, it's the reason that Chris comes into our office every day. What's your reason? And so there were pictures all over our walls of my employees' dreams, but I actually knew what they were. And so the day we sold the company, I went with Chris to buy the house. And then I went with him to surprise his mom when we brought her there. He brought her there and she thought it was my house. She thought she was visiting me in Florida. And so when we got to do the reveal and say, actually, because Chris worked so hard, our products were great. And because our products were great, someone bought the company. And because I gave everybody equity, Chris made a lot of money. And now this is your house. It's completely paid for. Even though it wasn't my mom, that was one of my favorite moments ever. Oh, man. What a fabulous story. Uh, it, it meant so much to me. Jeff, thank you very much indeed for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.